0: Father, we're grateful for your love, um, for uh, your faithfulness. We're thankful for um, the opportunity this week to um, be with family and friends and to uh, give thanks to you for uh, your kindness, your goodness, your faithfulness. And we thank you for even more so how we're called to do that um, this day, on the Lord's Day, and how we get to gather together as your people um, to offer you our thanksgiving. We pray that you would be near to us by your Holy Spirit um, as we worship Um, an hour from now and that you be close to us now as well as we spend this time in Sunday school together um, discussing your word and your ways we pray it in Christ's name amen all right friends um, we are continuing a series on uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith and we're going to complete today if all goes as planned the chapter five the chapter on Providence um, uh, that uh, Elder Lauren Clark began to teach uh, on last week Um, Just by way of reminder, um, we'll start with this first paragraph from that chapter um, that gives um, such a uh, lucid and helpful uh, definition, I think, of what we mean um, when we talk about the scriptural doctrine of the providence of God. Um, You can see that at the top of your page. Um, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, "...and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence." So providence is the word that we use to describe um, all of his actions in that way. "...according to God's infallible foreknowledge, so that he knows um, what's going to happen, and the free and, immutable, free and immutable, that is unchangeable, counsel of his own will." So, not only that he knows what is going to come to pass, but he wills it uh, freely and without changing, without um, uh, being subject to the will of others, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Um, Edward Morris, um, who was a 19th century writer, um, says that no definition of providence so exact and so comprehensive as this can be found elsewhere in protestant symbolism by symbolism he simply means um uh, protestant theology or protestant uh, creeds or confessions from that reformation period and um and that's accurate i think and that's one of the great strengths of the westminster confession of faith is its precision and its definition and it's the comprehensiveness the exactness um, and the preciseness of of those words i think it's a really helpful definition in the abstract However, I do think that it's also, when you come to a doctrine like God's providence, um, important to personalize this doctrine, um, to uh, think about what it means in relationship, my relationship to God and and his dealings with me in my life. And um, I think that the Heidelberg Catechism actually really helps us um, to think about God's providence from a kind of personal, dynamic, relational perspective. Uh, Friends, as you're coming in, there are handouts there on the sound booth Um, in the back that you can grab for yourself. Um, So I'm going to just read some of the questions here that are on your page from the Heidelberg Catechism. Heidelberg Catechism was uh, produced um, earlier than the Westminster Confession. It came out of Germany. Um, 26, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth? Um, The answer that is given Um, What do you mean when you say you believe that? I believe that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and who still upholds and governs them by his eternal counsel and providence, is for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father. And I just want to pause there and say, I think as we think about this doctrine of God's providence, what we're really wrestling with, is what it's like to have God to be our Father, um, to have the God who creates all things, the God um, who is sovereign over all things, to have that God be our Father in heaven, um, who oversees the world and oversees every detail of our lives. That's fundamentally what we're talking about when we talk about God's providence. We're talking about what it means for him to be our almighty and heavenly Father. In him, the question or the answer continues, in him, that is in my God and my Father, I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul, and will also turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow. He is able to do so as Almighty God and willing also as a faithful father Um, so the dynamic of that answer is emphasizing um, that God will give us whatever is necessary for our body and soul and he will also turn to our good whatever adversary not that comes into my life but whatever adversary he sends in this life of sorrow Um, so you see the active and dynamic hand of God um, behind all the details of your life and I love that um, that's what God's providence means and the last sentence there, we believe—I believe—that he is able to do this as Almighty God. He's sovereign. He's powerful, and that he's willing to do this. He desires to treat me in this way uh, because he is my faithful Father. Uh, question twenty-seven goes into more detail. What do you understand by the providence of God? Um, this is a remarkable um, answer, and it's. Um, Uh, and its personality, and it's the way that it dynamically wrestles with God's providence um, in our lives. God's providence, the answer goes, is his almighty and ever-present power. So it it never is absent, it's never turned away from us. God's face is always uh, towards us in terms of his presence um, being with us, ordering the things in our lives whereby as with his hand, so it is though God's hand is dynamically involved in every detail of our life, every, uh, every breath we take, every um, thing that takes place um, around us, um, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, Right, nothing is to be left outside of his sovereign care, and so governs them that lay, leaf and blade, rain and drought, "...fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand." So that emphasis again on that that personal relationship, right? <clears throat> it's not just... Abs- God's providence isn't just some sort of abstract theory about how uh, the world works. It is the ever-present power uh, of God... Um, his fatherly hand um, being uh, dynamically involved in our lives in an ever-present, ever-faithful way. Uh, finally, question 28, um, what does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? So what, what benefit, right? What, what, what is it worth um, that we believe in God's providence as we've just defined it? The answer goes, because of this, because of God's providence and his um, dynamic care, consistent care for us, sovereign rule over us, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. Of course, that is a, a quotation almost from Romans 8, the end of Romans 8. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. I love that answer um, that the Heidelberg gives there. Um, this is the benefit of um, trusting in God's providence, is um, that we can indeed be patient. Um, in difficult times we can be grateful um, in prosperous times and we can have a firm confidence about our future um, that nothing will separate us from God's love um, because he rules over all things any thoughts or comments about that section of the Heidelberg before we continue to talk about things here those questions and answers provoke anything Um just to just keep moving along here, um, I think one of the things that for me, as we think about uh, what does God, provi- God's providence mean, um, uh, God's providence means that um, whatever comes into our life comes into our life by the hand of God, and that means that ultimately um, if we are going to, to be displeased um, with the circumstances of our life, if we're going to be dissatisfied, um, fundamentally we can't blame, so to speak, you know, fate or karma or um, random chance. Um, what we have to do, this is what God's, we believe about God's providence, we have to go to Him. Right. We have to wrestle with him as our father because he is the one um, who has done it. He is the one who has put us in this place. And so for me, the, this doctrine of the providence of God is one that um, requires of us a kind of deep wrestling often, a deep um, um, even confrontation with God in a way that is appropriate but is, is right, um, that we, we have to do business with God. Um, I have read this Calvin quote years ago. It's from his chapter in his Institutes on God's Providence, which is, I think, one of the best chapters in all of um, his uh, work, his Institutes. Um, the way that it summarizes and, and de- if, you know, Calvin is one of those guys that um, often is, gets a bad rap, right? He's just sort of this, like, supposed to be anyway, this very abstract, cold, you know, definitional the, definitional theologian, but the reality is, if you read the Institutes, that they're deeply pastoral; that he's constantly wrestling with um, what what these doctrines mean in the lives of God's people. Um, he's a beautiful writer. Um, it just the Institutes are remarkable; the greatest, um, probably, work of theology written um, in the last 500 years, at least. Um, Calvin, <coughs> in that chapter on God's providence says, therefore no one will weigh God's providence properly and profitably but him who considers that his business is with his maker and the framer of the universe and with becoming humility submits himself to fear and reverence. I love the way that Calvin puts that. You're not going to fully understand um, the the doctrine of God's providence is not going to really seep into your heart and your soul unless you are willing to consider that you must do business with God um, about the details of your life um, as your maker and framer, as your father. Um, And ultimately, the outcome of that wrestling, of that doing business with God, um, is humility and submission um, to him, um, to his fatherly care, to his fatherly authority um, with fear and reverence. This is what God's providence calls us into that kind of dynamic relational um, uh, 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 dealing with God, um, especially God as our Father. I, I say here we believe in God's providence because it is the clear teaching of Scripture. We could spend a lot of time this morning, we won't, but we could go through all the places where. Um, God's sovereignty, his rule over all things is taught. Um, it's taught all throughout the scriptures. Um, very clearly, it's one of the most clearly taught doctrine in the doctrines in the Bible, I think. Um, but we believe in God's providence, first of all, for that reason, because the scripture teaches it, but also because the alternative would be unbearable. I mean, what would it be like for us to live in a world where God was not sovereign, where he was not... Uh, providentially upholding all things um, by his present uh, power, by his uh, will, um, by willing them to be. Um, it, it, it's almost unimaginable to think, for myself at least, about what it would be like to to think that that's the case, right? And I understand, I guess, that there are people who really do think that, that the universe is nothing but a big, you know, they, everything's chance, everything is random, there's no um, underlying order, Um, or, uh, you know, will that is involved outside of myself and these other human beings around me um, that determine what takes place. I I think that's terrifying. Um, I think that's unbearable. No wonder people are so anxious and um, unhappy um, if they actually believe that that's the case. Now, I think a lot of people, you know, probably aren't as purely atheistic in that way as as they uh, might um, say they are. but, but it, 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 for, my, for my money, it, you know, the, the absence of God's sovereignty and providence is an unbearable uh, way to live, um, for just from a philosophical perspective. Um, in addition, rightly taught and understood the doctrine of God's fatherly providence. Um, so not only his sovereign rule, but his role as our father, um, who is overseeing our lives for our good, is a source of immeasurable hope and comfort to the believer, right? Um, So if if we really believe this, we really trust this to be true, um, if if God's providence is rightly taught and believed, um, then it is a remarkable source of comfort um, for each one of us and hope. Remember, I say, that God's ultimate act of providence, in some sense, I mean, his providence will continue into the new heavens and the new earth, but Um, It will certainly culminate um, in a significant way with the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead is part of God's providence. The timing of that event, the way that it will take place, all of that will happen uh, because of his fatherly hand. Um, The resurrection of the dead, the last judgment, the renewal and perfection of all things. Um, And this will require our death. This will require for us to participate and experience these things will require us to die. Hey, guys, welcome. There's some handouts back there if you want them on, on the sound booth. So great to see you. Um, so my point there is that we, we will have to give ourselves into the hands of God, trusting in his providence, at least in our death. And we trust that in our death, God will turn these things uh, for our good, that his ultimate act of his providence will be our resurrection and eternal life. So if we can trust God's providence with our death, um, can we not also trust him with all things? This, it seems to me, is the essence of Paul's argument in Romans 8, uh, 18 to 39. Um, If you remember in that passage, it begins with um, all creation uh, groans um, for the redemption that God is going to bring. And he talks about how um, the, the hope of that redemption is found in the resurrection of the dead. Um, that we will be made like unto God, and our creation with us will be raised. Then Paul moves from there in Romans eight into that uh, wonderful um, statement that all things work for good um, for those that love God, um, and which is. But it's important to say like that statement is rooted in um, the promise of resurrection, which Paul has just been talking about. Um, so you know, sometimes that statement i think is is you know we we can sort of speed up uh, what we want to to see the goodness that god is working in our lives ultimately god working all things for our good will be finally resolved in the resurrection of the dead and the renewal of all creation and then he moves right into after that i'm talking about um, the way that christ himself was raised from the dead that he is now ascended and is at god's right hand if god is for us who can be against us and then he ends all of that by talking again about death, about how we are all like sheep who are to be slaughtered, and, um, but nothing in all creation, right? Um, not uh, not uh, principalities or powers. Um, importantly, neither life nor death can separate us from the love of God in our Lord Jesus Christ, um, in the one who has gone through death and been raised himself. Um, it seems to me that's exactly what Paul is arguing um, so th- it's important to see that great statement about god's providence that we quote a lot eight twenty eight right um, that God works all things for good uh, for those who love him um, is sandwiched in a larger context of Paul reflecting on um, the death and resurrection um, that is promised for us and that has been um, experienced already in Jesus um, that this this is the th- This doctrine is the thing that proves um, the larger concept of God's love and his trustworthiness. All right, anything that I've said here in the last few minutes that you want to ask about or comment on? Uh, Jeremy in the Kathina. Right. Yeah, it's a very comprehensive doctrine. That's right. I I agree that oftentimes Reformed theology um, is understood in a very narrow way to be primarily about election and reprobation. Um, But really, those doctrines have to be understood in this broader context of God's providential ruling over all things, which certainly includes our salvation. How could it not? Uh, Kathina and then James. absolutely yeah our flesh doesn't like it and also the enlightenment tradition doesn't like it um that we're the heirs of you know in, in modernity um the democratic tradition that we're a part of doesn't love it um you know all of those things um so yeah but it I understand what you're saying, um, that we, it's, a, it's a something that we wrestle with um, in particular ways, I think, as modern people. But there's such solace and comfort um, in, in believing and trusting in, in God's um, providential supervision of all things. Yeah, James, did you have a comment or question? Right. right absolutely yeah you can't separate those things or pull them apart at all and certainly i think you know 21st century western christians prefer when we talk about god's providence to talk about his provision and his the way that it you know he means that he's going to give us good things and all that but certainly if we read the scriptures part of god's providence is his fatherly discipline and that he is going to purify us and um, make us holy and one of the ways he does that one of the primary ways he does that i think we can say is by bringing difficulty and suffering and adversity into our life Um, that is also his fatherly care for us Um, and um, yeah we we have a harder time talking about that for obvious reasons i think Um, but it's clearly taught in the scriptures all over the place and it's I think all of us who have walked with Christ can bear witness to it in our lives. Tammy, did you have a comment?
1: he got right
0: in my face and he said but that does not negate your responsibility amen i agree <laughs> yeah right no absolutely and we we want to clearly say that we believe in that and certainly the confession is going to emphasize um our responsibility in various ways throughout um, and calvin actually wonderfully has in his, his work on, on the institutes he has a on that chapter in God's providence um, after uh, you know talking um, in great detail about all the ways that God is sovereign he has this um, extended paragraph where it's titled something like um, God's providence does not negate our responsibility exclamation point point! Um, and he goes on and on about how you know just because God is sovereign doesn't mean that you don't have to live with wisdom and responsibility in your life you shouldn't be reckless you, you know all these sorts of things so yeah, absolutely. We want to hold on to those things. And one more and then we'll move on. Yeah, Mike. It also seems that uh suffering is put in place for God's glory. Yes. Especially long term. Right. So listening to the Soviet describe the brother's memorial service. Yeah. Right. Family heritage. Right. Yeah, God is glorified um, by making us like unto his Son, um, making us like unto Jesus. Um, and, and that's the whole sweep of creation, right? God made us in his image um, to be reflections of his glory. Um, we marred that image um, by our fall and um, sin, um, but Jesus has come to restore that image and God intends us to make us like his son Um, and in the context of this world the fallenness that we live in it will require suffering Um, right Jesus himself the writer to Hebrews says learned obedience through the things that he suffered and after being made mature um, he uh, was designated to be the high priest after the order of Melchizedek and certainly if that's true for us if that's true for him, that's true for us. We also will learn obedience um, by the things that we suffer, uh, which is a... If you're going to walk with Christ, you've got to wrestle with what the Apostle talks about there in Hebrews 5. I, I'm, I'm sort of
1: at the that even in suffering, that is sufficient.
0: Mm-hmm. yes absolutely yeah we bear witness to his faithfulness and 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 i would say in some fundamental sense none of us are rescued from suffering right we're all going to go into the grave um, just like jesus did Um, none of us are going to be spared um, that and yeah but it is in that context where we can uniquely bear witness to god's um, faithfulness his goodness absolutely all right, let me, let me run through the rest of this um, chapter here on, on providence. I'm grateful for this larger discussion about the doctrine itself. Um, at the bottom of your page, I talk about the structure of Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5, um, paragraph 1, which is at the top of your page that I read at the beginning. is kind of a definitional, definitional um, um, statement about um, the doctrine of God's providence. Um, Paragraphs two and three, which Lauren covered last week, describe how God works out His providence. Um, Here, the Confession speaks at some length about the idea of second causes and God using means to bring about His providence. Right, that His providence isn't something that He just immediately acts upon the world. Right, He doesn't um, He say that you know there's going to be a a, he, He doesn't Himself personally in an immediate way warm the earth and give it um, what it needs to live. He, he creates the sun, and he uses the sun and you know, the solar system as a, a means of um, giving us sunlight and, and warmth and life and those kinds of things. So God's providence very often uses means. And then the, the uh, four chapters or, or four paragraphs I'm going to walk through quickly with you this morning um, have to do with how his providence works out in specific circumstances. Um, in, in paragraph four, and the fall of humanity, In paragraph 5, in the temptation and sin of his children. In paragraph 6, in the sin and rebellion of the wicked. And in paragraph 7, in the life of his church, that is, his people. So I'm just going to move through this fairly quickly here, um, because I think the the more important conversation is the one that we just had um, the last um, half hour or so. Um, So let me start with this. The almighty power, this is chapter 4, this is where... The divines are working out what does God's providence mean in relationship to the fall of humanity. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men and that not by a bare permission but such as hath joined it with a most wise and powerful bounding and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends. Yet so as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature and not from God, who being most holy and righteous neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. And then you see there um, the letters in parentheses which correspond to the scripture references that are listed there underneath. Now, in some ways, this is a more uh, comprehensive statement about what was already stated in Westminster 3, 1, um, that God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass, yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established." Um, so essentially, um, um, well, Lethem summarizes well what Westminster Five Four is trying to, to communicate. Um, this paragraph, Lethem says, in that quote there, states that the fall of man and the angels into sin are within the bounds of God's providence. Right? He uses that word bounding. This he not only permitted. So God did not only permit. We want to be very careful to say that the fall of humanity was not only, quote-unquote, permitted by God, allowed by God to happen, um, but actually ordered and governed. That's the language that you see there um, in the Confession. With a most wise and powerful bounding. God was not a passive spectator watching helplessly in the garden, in Genesis 3, as men and angels rebelled. Their sin was part of his greater purpose to, as the Confession states, his own holy ends; he kept it within the limits he had ordained, which will ultimately be, <clears throat> which will ultimately be seen to be for his own glory and the creature's greater good. In this way, accountability for sin rests squarely with fallen angels and humans—that um, is, Satan and Adam and Eve, while, and, and those that fall after them—while God Himself cannot be held responsible. Now, this raises big questions, Lethem says, like, for example, how does that work, (laughs) right? How can God be both sovereign um, um, over uh, the fall of humanity, the rebellion of Satan and Adam and Eve, and yet not responsible? How can they be fully responsible? Um, But it is, Lethem says, this raises big questions, but it is the agreed conclusion of the Christian tradition with which the assembly concurred um, and on which it did not spend inordinate time, um, uh, and that's true. That they, if you look at these, he's referring there to the notes that were taken of um, the, you know, eight or nine years that were spent on. They wrestled with some things, but they didn't really wrestle with this. Um, this and and this is you know a tradition that goes back at least to Augustine and the um, uh, teaching of the church. Um, this kind of idea that we can both. Uh, believe in God's sovereignty over all these things, but we also need to distinguish between um, uh, the f- the fullness of man's responsibility um, t- um, for uh, their actions and sin. Um, essentially, in this paragraph, I say the divines are holding intention, and it's important to see what they're doing. They're holding these doctrines in tension, and they're not seeking to fully resolve or explain. Um, how that tension um, might be resolved, right? They're not, they're not trying to tell us how this all works out. They're toting in tension God's, or, I'm sorry, Scripture's clear teaching that God is sovereign over all things in his creation and also that God is not and cannot be the author of sin. And we see that in a million different ways, both of those doctrines taught clearly in Scripture. God is sovereign over all things, which must include the fall um, but he is also, cannot be, and is not, um, the author or source of sin or wickedness. Um, and I, I think that's all I have time to say about that. I know we could talk about philosophical questions there. But, um, yeah, that's what we're going to say. Um, that those things need to be held in tension. Um, just like many, many doctrines in the scriptures do. Uh, paragraph 5, the most wise, righteous, and gracious God um, this is where He's working out what does God's providence mean in the life of believers when they fall into sin and temptation. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season His own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and the deceitfulness of their hearts, that they be humbled. It's fascinating to think about what is God willing to do to humble us, right? Um, He's willing to allow us um, to go into corruption and sin and temptation um, so that we understand more deeply our need for him, our dependence. And to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support unto himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other, just and holy ends. Um, I think it's, this paragraph is kind of fascinating if you think about it in terms of your own life, uh, periods where you may have fallen um, into sin or temptation in a way that uh, you were blinded, it felt like, for a time, um, um, to your own actions. and their um, you know, wh- why, why did God allow these things to happen? Why, perhaps, did he allow... Uh, you to experience consequences for those sins um, that you were caught up in, um, by them being exposed, or you, you know, having to do some kind of restitution or whatever it might have been, or experience the um, the horror of damaging someone else um, by your sin. Well, the confession is giving you some answers pastorally, I think. Um, to be ch- part of it is to be chastised. Part of it is that you might more fully understand your own sinfulness and be humbled. Um, part of his it is to make you more watchful in the future over your own life and that you not fall into sin in the same way. Or, as they say, for sundry other, just and holy ends. Uh, in paragraph 6, um, he's going to talk about, the divines are going to talk about um, how does God providen- God's providence work itself out in the sin and corruption of the wicked. Um, So it's distinguishing between um, believers and the wicked in in paragraphs 5 and 6. and paragraph 6, As for those wicked and ungodly men, whom God, as a righteous judge for former sins, doth blind and harden, from them he not only withholdeth his grace, um, so he not only holds back his grace, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understandings and wrought upon in their hearts, but sometimes also withdraweth the gifts which they had, and exposeth them to such objects as their corruption makes occasion of sin, and withal gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves, even under those means which God useth for the softening of others. Um, So uh, they're just... Divines here just talking about how does God's providence work itself out in the hardening of the wicked as they're given over to their sin, um, and essentially saying that God, um, again, you have this dynamic where God is withholding grace; He is obviously sovereignly involved in that, but they're also um, hardening themselves. Um, there's a hardness that that um, that they're participating in, um, even sometimes under the preaching of the word and under. Um, the discipline of the church um, th- those things don't lead to softening um, as they would in someone who is um, a part of the elect but they actually are means by which god is hardening their hearts um, <clears throat> and they are, they themselves are participating in that hardening uh, finally in paragraph seven um, this is a wonderful paragraph here it has to do with your life my life As the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner it taketh care of his church and disposeth all things to the good thereof. Um, This is something that we need to know and believe. Um, God's providence is not merely some sort of um, distant, um, separate, you know, sort of, overseeing of the world in a detached kind of way, Um, particularly for his church, uh, not just the institutional church, but his people, the people who make up his church, his providence is exercised in a most special care, a most particular way. Um, This is the teaching of our Lord Christ, um, who said um, to his disciples, to those who belong to God, um, that not one sparrow can fall from the air without the will of their father in heaven, and how much more value are you than many sparrows right he 's saying um, God doesn 't somehow in the mysterious will of god 's providence, he attends to your life way more than he does to the life of a sparrow, um, because you 're much more valuable to him than a sparrow is even though a sparrow in some sense is infinitely valuable to him, right? He created sparrows that thinks they're wonderful, he thinks they're good, and he oversees everything that happens to them. But in some way that is, you know, um, hard for us even to comprehend, you know, fully, he even more specifically watches over your life um, with even more special and detailed care than he does over the sparrows, or we might say over all the rest of his good creation. Um, your life receives more attention and care from your heavenly father um, than anything else um, that he has made and that is something that is worth holding on to i think all right with those things in mind i'm going to turn it over now to paul let me pray for us and then i'm going to give it to paul uh, father thank you for your love for us thank you for this doctrine of your um, providence in our lives help us lord as calvin says um, to do business with you um, to wrestle with you father um, as our father and to um, learn what it means um, to fear you, to obey you, to submit to you, to trust you, um, in all the details um, of our lives and of the world around us, um, which you have so uh, wonderfully ordained. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.